Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Tara. Hi, I'm Terrell. I'm a compulsive world reader. And since this goes on the World Wide Web, I just should mention right now that I'm strikingly handsome, <laughs> um, amazingly built, and uh, don't look my age of 56. So, there we go. We get that out of the way. Um, let's see. Qualified. <clears throat> my top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, and I have 33 years of abstinence. So... Now, since this is going to pot, I should really make it perfectly clear. It's my opinion, and only my opinion. I'm an opinionated old-timer. And if you can find what I say is contradictory contradictory in the big book, then I will definitely change my tune. Um, But in the meantime, I get to express my opinion. And if I want to get up here and read the big book, I could. But that would probably make for, we could all do that at home. Well, hopefully we're all doing that at home, reading the big book. He said, but no, it's saying I don't hear it very much anymore. If you want to hide something from a compulsive overeater, put it in the big book. Um, hopefully that's not true for this room. Because this, this, the big book, our literature, is one of the reasons I have 33 years of abstinence. One of the really strong reasons I have 33 years of abstinence. That I kept breathing and I didn't eat. Um, so I'll give you a little, brief little rundown of what it used to be like so you really do know that I qualify and that that's not a picture of a twin brother or something like that that I'm passing around. Um, that picture is of me in high school. Obviously, since I'm 56 and I'm 33 years of absence, I don't have a whole lot of fat pictures. Um, I have spent basically my entire life thin, uh, or at this weight that you see me. Um, but I'm still a compulsive overeater. I mean, let's, let's be clear. <clears throat> I talk about this in a... a Body size has nothing to do with the disease of compulsive overeating. You can be five pounds overweight and be a raging compulsive overeater. You can be 30 pounds overweight and not, have a, not be a compulsive overeater. Uh, when we raise our hands and say we're a compulsive re- overeater, it basically means that I am petty, that my feelings get hurt very easily, that you don't do it right, that I don't know how to do it right, but I know that I'm, I'm always kind of work harder to make up for all the horrible things that I keep doing wrong, which I can't tell you what they are, but I just know that I'm wrong. But then I'm going to try and convince you that I'm right, <laughs> um, that I, I'm very jealous, I'm very envious, that I um, covet other people's things, that I just really want you all to understand how horrible my life was, and why can't you just... Give me the keys to the kingdom to make up for my childhood. And then I will be okay for a minute. And then someone else will come along and not look at me right, and then I will have to be disappointed again. And if I, I, I came into this life as a compulsive reader, I was, my family is riddled with the disease. Riddled. I mean, it's, whether it's the food, whether it's heroin, whether it's spending, 
whether it's whatever, you name the addiction, sometime in the past, I'm sure my family has used it to a help, has used it as an addiction. And the reason why is because we all had that little hole in our soul that just seemed to get passed down from generation to generation. You know, um, it's like the tools for living, I, don't, I didn't get from my family. They weren't supportive. I would, I, would go to be, I would go to school and be called Terrell the Barrel, picked on, you know, at 325 pounds, come home in tears, and my parents were drinking and fighting. And I couldn't turn to them and go, like, I had really had a really bad day at school, and I just, you know, I just need some love. Their, their, their reaction would be more like, well, what about me and my needs? You know, and you're being a bother right now. Which, I understand that. As a, of an, uh, that's what an addict does. Like, an addict says, I'm just trying to get even. I'm just trying to get caught up. I'm just trying to get so I can rest. So I can just breathe. Because I always feel like there's something that's, that's pushing me. That I gotta... And so, we... I mean, I have yet to meet an addict who, who likes to sit there and be quiet by themselves. Because they're always trying to do something. They're always trying to... Achieve because then if they can just get to that point where they can go, okay, I'm settled, and life is good, and everything's in order, and life is great. And so that is why I ate. That is why I ate because I needed a way to stop. I needed a way to make the world go away so I could have some peace because the world was difficult. If if you're binging, um, and I'll, I mean, I, I, sometimes I'll say if you, and because I mean, when I'm binging, the world's not a fun place, and the world is difficult, and it's hard, and that's why I ate because it gave me a little source of comfort, just enough, just just you know, I could if I could just get that first bite, and then, then after I got the first bite, then I could relax. But then the first bite would wear off, and then I had to get another bite. And then that bear bite would wear off. And so sooner or later, I'd go through that bag of donuts, and I had no more donuts. And I had to stop eating. Because I couldn't just constantly eat 24-7. And then I'd wake up and go, oh, God, I did it again. And I would just hate myself. And then the shame would kick in about how I'm not good enough. Well, why don't I just do something? And what's wrong with me? And, and if I could just lose a little bit of weight, then I could have some friends and my life would be wonderful. And the next day I would binge again. And I knew that if I could just lose some weight and get some friends, my life would be wonderful. But yet I kept binging. So I, then I hate myself because I binged. And now I knew how to deal with those feelings of hatred and, and self-remorse and, and self-pity was to eat again. So I got in this vicious circle where I had to eat to take away the pain, which caused more pain, so I had to eat again. And then I got in a vicious circle of pain again. And you know that morning after binge where we say, I'm never going to do that again? Mm-hmm. We have all said that pledge every morning after binge. You know, or every Sunday night, or whenever we say mm-hmm. that pledge, I'm never going to do that again. You know, I thought that, you know, Maybe I'd write a, uh, something on the, put something in the refrigerator and say, write about how horrible I felt in the morning so that when I go there at night, I'd read it and go, that will stop me. But if you're a compulsive overeater and you raise your hand that you were, then that means that 
you will go back to the food again. Because that's what we do. That's what we do. We turn to food to take the edge off. And as long as I have an edge, I will need to seek food. That's why this program works, is because it takes that edge off. It enables me to not seek excess food to take the edge off, to be comfortable in my own skin. So, <clears throat> what happened was, as I talked about, I was a, a child and I grew up in this family. I wound up coming to OA the first time in, uh, when I was 17 years old. And you can do the math and you know this, so this didn't stick. But I lost 125 pounds in about five months. And I, um, and I basically worked the great food plan that they offered. It was on a gray sheet of paper. Now, as a 17-year-old boy eating two eggs and an orange for breakfast and working on a shipping loading dock lifting, you know, steel rims all day long, I was going to lose weight. I mean, there was no doubt about it. Um, at, at a 56-year-old man, it's difficult for me to lose 125 pounds in five months. It would probably be very unhealthy for me. But at that point in my life, it was not tro- problematic. It was quite easy. It just fell off of me. Um, and I was so willing I was so willing when I got here. I was so much pain. I mean, you know, being a teenager in high school, and I grew up at Hermosa Beach, so I was at the beach, and it was god-awful. And I was picked on, and it was, like I said, this alcoholic family, and I was willing to do anything. Because I had said to myself, I was going to graduate from high school, and I just wasted four years of high school being fat. And I was going to go to college. And I was going to waste four years of my life in college by being fat. And I'm going to waste the rest of my life being fat. Now, that statement is a compulsive overeater statement. Because someone who's a little overweight, who's not a compulsive overeater, don't, doesn't feel like they're wasting their life because they're overweight. They're not waiting for the perfect weight to go out and participate in life. But I was waiting for that perfect weight so I could go participate in life. And then I hated myself for not participating in life, so the only way I knew to handle that, that self-hatred was to eat again. Once again, I got back in that vicious circle. So I, I lost the weight, got down to 160 pounds, but I didn't work a 12-step program. And we're, very clear in our, we're very clear here. You can come in and lose weight, baby. You don't work the steps, you'll go back out. You'll go eat again. You'll gain all your weight back. Or if you're an anorexic, you will get thin again. You'll be a hitch yourself. You'll be at the gym three hours a day. Because if you don't work the steps, that's what happens. We, if we are a not working a program, the disease will get the best of us and we will take us back up. So that's what happened to me. I didn't work the steps. I went to a meeting a week for moral support because it was, felt good to go to a meeting. Didn't need the stuff there for my sick alcoholic parents, so I left and uh, got back up to uh, about 250, 275 pounds. And then I came out of the closet. So those of you who said it was gay on the uh, pod, now you know where it comes in. Um, and what happened was I came out of the closet, and it helped me. I didn't have to eat over my sexuality. Uh, like hiding myself. I didn't have to stuff my face to stuff down my sexuality because I was so afraid that anyone would find out that I was attracted to men. So I would constantly stuff my face and, and try to be, just make myself unattractive. Now, I didn't realize that, but I was just, 
if I could just take it away, if I could just take that, that, that shame and the self-hatred for being gay away, then I would, I, you know, and I had to eat that, eat that away. So when I came out, I didn't have to eat that away. Of course, I created a whole other set of problems, like picking up the phone and calling some guy and leaving a message and then waiting for him to call you back, which to me is the worst thing, or the hardest thing to abstain through in my life. It's when I pick up the phone and call some guy for a date and I leave that message. And I'm sitting there going, like, is he going to call? Is he going to call? Oh, my God, I just made myself vulnerable. Oh, my God, I'm exposed. Oh, my God, what will he think of me? Oh, my God, he's going to tell his friends. Oh, my God. And the only way I know how to handle with that was to eat. So I, I got down, though, to 160 pounds by doing nothing but the donut diet, and which, is, which you don't eat anything all day long except 9 or 10 donuts at night. Um, and I, d- I ate them at 2 o'clock in the morning because I went to the, dan- to the dance hall, to the discotheque, and I danced. And I came home from the dan- on the way home. There would be donut stands along the way, and I'd pass one, and I'd say, victory, I have victory over food. And those were the terms I used, victory. I succeeded. I passed the donut stand. But there was another one up on the other side of the street. And very rarely did I make it past every donut stand on the way home. Because I had to eat. I had to deal with these emotions and feelings that I had by standing on this crowded dance floor, in a dark, crowded dance floor with the hundreds of men around me, and being afraid to move my little finger, because I knew if I moved my little finger, someone would walk up to me and say, what are you doing here, fat boy? Look at you. You're too fat and you're too ugly. Go home. So the only way I know how to deal with that was I had to eat. So I eat, I guess. So I got my donuts. But I maintained my weight at 160 pounds on my donut diet. Because, you know, it's like, uh, you folks told me it's not the 100th bite that puts the weight on, it's the first. So I learned if I don't take that first bite all day long, I was safe food. food. Safe. Now, maybe you don't have that concept that I do. But I learned at 17 that I'm an addict, that, I, that I'm hopelessly addicted to food. So I knew that if I just don't start, then I'd be safe. But the problem is, I start. I start again. Because I can't deal with life without my food. I had to have my food. What happened was, I was told by an eye doctor um, that if I did not stop eating sugar, I'd be blind in a, within a year from either hypoglycemia or diabetes. And I put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And while I was, I was in Europe, and I was binging my way through Europe... And I remember thinking, I can still see. When things start to go gray, that's when I'll stop. (laughs) That's called shutting the dark barn door after the horse has left. That's called insanity. When I talk about what am I willing to sacrifice for a bite of chocolate, I can tell you right now. My eyesight. Very clear. My eyesight. Now, I've sacrificed a lot of other things for that, for my bite of chocolate. A lot of other things. But I sacrificed, was willing to sacrifice my eyesight. But because of diabetes. And it was very clear, there, there is diabetes and hypoglycemia in my family. My grandmother died from them taking body parts because she was diabetic. So it, it's true. And I knew it was true. It wasn't like some fantasy, some like, maybe you might be hypoglycemic diabetic, maybe you might be, you know, have a little problem with your eyesight. No. I believe my doctor when he said I'd be blind within a year. But I'll stop when things go gray. And that's how you folks got me the second time around. Not the last time, but the second time. And I came back to Overs Anonymous because 
you know, all those excuses, the reason why I could not be a member of Overeaters Anonymous was because I was gay, I was male, I was young, and they all got taken away by food. It says in our literature, John Barleycorner is our best advocate. And food took my excuses not to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous. So I came back to OA, and I get, lost the weight I gained, uh, 30 pounds, and I got back down to about 165 pounds. I had a spiritual experience where I felt like I was at one with the universe. Um, I had this small, still voice inside of me that said, Terrell, you're going to be all right. You have as much right to be here as the tree. And it was the first in my life that I felt like I wasn't breathing your air. And that is how I felt walking around the planet before I had that spiritual experience, is that any second you could snatch my breath away. And I was living in constant terror and fear that you would because I did something wrong. So... When I had that spiritual experience, I felt the presence of God. And I, and I basically wound up going to my sponsor about three or four months in program, telling him, I know I'm sick and tired of going to these rooms full of fat-ass people. Mm-hmm. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot eat, what I can and cannot eat. On a Friday night, I will be out dancing with the boys in Palm Springs. I'm not just in some damn meeting at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. Because <laughs> OA is not helping me become hip, slick, and cool. It is not helping me be what I want to be, and I'm out of here. So on January 5th, 1979, I broke my abstinence. It was about two weeks where I kind of played with it, kind of toyed with maybe breaking it, and then I broke my abstinence on two pieces of toast on January 5th, 1979. And that's my last binge. Two pieces of toast. My abstinence for 33 years has been no sugar and no flour. Period. No ifs, ands, or buts. My absence has been perfect for 33 years. Because on January 6, 1979, I woke up and then I got abstinent again. I became abstinent. And when I say I have perfect abstinence, if I did not have perfect abstinence, I could not stand up here and say I have 33 years of abstinence. Now, my food has been crappy. When I say, oh, maybe that was a cuss word. Um, my food has not been idyllic. I mean, it's because I, I, I mean... I know. I once spoke at this convention in Minnesota many years ago, um, and this woman who was sharing the podium with me, it was at Ruth's Colleen, she had like 18 years, I had probably like 25, maybe something like that, 25 years of abstinence, and she had like 18 years of waiting measured abstinence. And I called back here to L.A., or actually San Diego, this woman who had more time than me, and I said, I feel like a, a failure. I feel like a sham here. I don't, I don't, I feel like I'm not abstinent. I like, this woman's got weight and measure abstinence, and I must still be playing with food. And the woman on the other hand said, you're crazy. You're just crazy. Just let it go. Because my story, my food is not weight and measure. My food is a moderate mealer. That's how I handle my food. It works for me. For the first 18 years, I didn't eat in between meals. But then I started taking medicine from HIV, and it tore up my gut, and I wound up, I had, I could eat whenever I could eat. Bottom line, if I, you know, and I went to my sponsor and said, if I can eat, I'll eat. If I can't, I can't. Because my stomach was in such turmoil. And she said, okay. So I let go of the three meal a day restriction. So my essence today is no sugar and no flour. And I know how insane it is to hear someone get up and say it's been 33 years since they've had sugar. I know how insane it is for me to say it's been 33 years since I've had a slice of wheat bread or croutons. I know. It's the most asinine thing in the world. And why would anyone do it? Why would anyone do that? 
and I would never have done this. If, if you have told me 33 years, I was gonna, 33 years ago, I'd have to give up bread for 33 years. I would have said, no, I can't do that. You don't understand. I cannot do that. That is impossible. When I, on January 6th, after I ate those, uh, January 5th, I, I, I ate these two pieces of toast, and the thoughts of donuts came pouring back in, and the thoughts of my weight and everything, the obsession came back that I had a few months of re- relief from. And so on January 6th, uh, well, actually what happened is I went to bed and I said, God, I cannot do this one more time. Please help me. I cannot do this one more time. And what I was praying about was not about weight, because I had maintained my weight at 160 pounds on the donut diet. What it was about was that mental obsession, that, you know, where you're just not good enough no matter what I do. And I'm in constant shame and constant fear that you'll find out. And that constant, like, if I'm, I'm just too fat, I'm just too fat. And if I could just lose a bit more weight, if I could just get some more friends, if I could just, if I could, that, that came back with two pieces of toast. Where I hated myself. Hated myself that I hadn't hated like myself in three months. So on January 6, 1979, I got up and I got abstinent. Now, I, would, I could tell you that once you get abstinence, your life will become rosy and idyllic and everything's going to be perfect. No. If you're typical, you're probably in the very beginning of a little, nice little period, but then the stuff's going to hit the fan and you're going to like feel like, why am I doing this? And you'll want to eat so bad, and then you're going to pace the floor. If you're like me, I shook my hands and paced the floor because I wanted to eat so bad. Because I felt like I was going to crawl out of my skin. I felt like I was going to crawl out of my skin if I just couldn't get some food. But you folks told me that, that to eat is to die. And in the beginning, I didn't believe that. I didn't. I, I told this gal, she says, to eat is to die. I said, no, it's not. I just got done binging. I'm not dead. And she said, no, to eat is to die. You die on the outside and wait for the insides to catch up. That's the other way. Right? You die on your diet, wait for the inside and wait for the outsides to catch up. And I know what she means now. To eat is to die. For me, to binge is to die. Because it takes everything that I am today and smashes it. And just stuffs it down because I thought that maybe... Maybe a chocolate bar would take, make life better. And I have yet to find anyone who says a chocolate bar has made their life better. It made the moment, that moment right then and there, better. And as addicts, as compulsive readers, we want the fix now. I have yet to meet a compulsive reader who likes a feeling. We want to be gone. We want to be out of our, my body, my existence. We just want to be gone. And that's what food did when I ate my donuts. I took the bite and I could go, okay, I can breathe. I got it. I got it. So you had damn well better give me something to take the place of that. Because if I walked in the door and I took away the food, or you took away my food, and that's all you did, I would have to kill myself. Matter of fact, it took me a long time to write my fourth-step inventory. It took me three years. Because I was afraid if I pulled the string, one string, it would unravel and you'd lock me up in the same asylum. Because that's how crazy I thought I was. And so I didn't write the inventory. Now, I'm a proponent of you write that inventory within the first month. It takes less than a week. It takes less than a week. My, I was with a sponsor... I got this new sponsor, and she, uh, I'm sorry, he, 
asked me if I had written, written my inventory. Now I'm about three years absent. He said, I said, no. He says, well, then you have it to me by the end of the week. I said, you don't understand. I've been trying to write it for three weeks, I mean, for three years. He said to me, no, you don't understand. You will have your inventory to me by the end of the week. <laughs> well, see, I had an idyllic, perfect way of how that inventory is going to be written. I was going to set a big oak desk with a nice green shade, and I was going to box of Kleenex, and I was going to cry and write, and I have an ice chest of diet soda by my side, and I was going to cry and drink and write, and I was going to get it all out, and I was just going to get emote, and I was just going to make this most wonderful, dramatic thing. The problem with writing my inventory is I didn't have an oak desk and I didn't have a case green shape. So how could I write my inventory? So when, I, when they said you have to write in the week, I literally wrote it during lunch break. I sat down and I missed meetings and fellowship because I had to write my friggin' inventory. And I gave it away and it was the most god-awful twist step I've ever heard. Where my sponsor came over and bellyached the fact that he came to my house and how dare he go. He can't believe he went to the sponsee's house. When the sponsee should come to the sponsor's house. And then he sat down on the floor and pretty much passed out or fell asleep or (laughs) vouched and burped. And after I gave him my fifth step, my my fourth step, he looked at me and said, are you hungry? And I thought it was a rhetorical question. And it was around lunchtime. I said, well, yeah. He said, let's go eat. And then when we got to the restaurant, he said, do you eat a lot? And I thought, once again, that's a rhetorical question. I'm a compulsory eater. He's a new sponsor. I said, well, yeah, you know. He says, well, then order the chicken and the salad bar. None of this, like, okay, make it a quiet time. Go to your books case. Take down this book. See if this is like the, have you completed every action? And the reason I talk about this today is because just because my fourth and fifth was not perfect, it worked. The steps work. Now, when you raised your hand and said you're a compulsive reader, you told me one thing that I know for sure. You're a perfectionist. <laughs> and you want to do it completely 100% right, because if you don't do it completely 100% right, then you're a failure. And you, we all know we're all failures in this room. We all know that I, we're not good enough in this room. Unless, of course, I can find someone else that can, oh, well, at least I'm not like that. <laughs> But as soon as someone else walks in the room that we like or we, you know, we're interested in or they've got maybe newer jeans on, we go, oh, no, I'm sure. I'm not really not good anymore. You know. So, so when I, I, I came back to program, like I said, I, I started working the steps. And it, didn't, it took me three years to work the fourth step. Don't wait that long. And especially if you've started writing your fourth step now, what happens is when you write that fourth step, you start going doing moral searching for fearless moral inventory of your history. You start dredging that stuff up. I mean, you start dredging it up and you start writing about it. And if you don't fit it and give it away soon, you will eat. Because you've just turned up all your character defects. And you haven't done the steps five, six, seven, eight, and nine to get rid of the character defects. Because if you don't get rid of the character defects, you will eat over them again. That's what happened with me. Twice, twice when I did not work a 12-step program. Worked the food plan, did fellowship, found a spiritual experience, did it all, but did not work the steps. The steps is the answer. That's what makes us always anonymous, is we all look at the steps and say, that's the answer. Now, if you were here around in the 80s, we, the, the inner child was very big, and there's lots of teddy bears in these rooms. But those teddy bears did not save you from compulsive overeating. Working the steps do. Working the tools do. 
Now, what has happened for me, for me to talk about what life is like at age 33 years of abstinence, it's hard to fathom when I was two years of abstinence. Now, this is not mightier than, holier than that. This is just facts. You, you can think about when you were in high school, what was senior like compared to being in kindergarten? That's what it's like. Where I get comfortable in my own skin. Where I don't... I wake up in the morning now and I'm just enjoying life. So I'm a bookkeeper and it's tax season, so right now I'm just a little tired. You know, I'm doing work and, you know, I'll be looking forward to a day off maybe in a couple of weeks. You know. I mean, I'm self-employed, so it's my own decisions. But that's okay. I also believe in character, my character defect of people-pleasing makes me great at customer service for my clients. So I can look at it either way. And I look at that to go like, okay, I have a character defect of a people-pleaser because I belong in, you know, I have these Al-Anon issues and ACA issues. But they also make sure that my clients love me and adore me and are very happy with me and refer me out all over the country. So that's the benefit. So, God, don't take away my character defects so much. Use it to your goodwill. You know. Now, so if you're, if you're considering and you have, your stuff's going to come up, and I'm going to tell you stuff is going to come up. If you've been around 33 years, I had a death in family. My sister, who was very, very dear to me, found out I was HIV positive when it was a death sentence, when I didn't know if I was going to live another week, another month. I, I, I didn't think I was going to be living this long. I mean, there's no way, there was no way I was going to see my 40th birthday. I've seen my 50th birthday because I was going to be dead, dead from the disease, from the HIV virus. I am, I have gone through, like I said, I've started my own business. I have moved across the country. I have traveled around the world. Absolutely. Now, when I say absolutely, that means telling you, that means no sugar, no flour. Now, I want to tell you a little experience. When I was about four years absence, um, I, you know, I just, my, my character defect, one of my character defects is I just want to be, I just want to be thin and, 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 and popular. So I finally went, wound up in about three, four years, I went to, I was living in Houston at the time, I went to New Orleans for Mardi Gras with a whole group of guys, and I felt like I had arrived. I was with these good-looking guys, I was like having this great time, and Mardi Gras in New Orleans, just like, oh my God, I think I've arrived. And we go to this fixed pre-brunch. And the fixed pre-brunch was, I'm thinking, like, okay, it's brunch. Why can't go wrong? Well, it's New Orleans. So I get there, and the fixed pre-brunch is chicken a la king. Now, I don't know what's about you, but I don't know how I, there's no way I can rationalize chicken a la king on a biscuit as no sugar, no flour. So there I am sitting at the, at pretty much at the head of the table, asking the waiter, is there anything else? And the guys around the table are making fun of me because I'm not, you know, I'm eating weird. I'm like, why don't they just, why don't you just eat the chicken out? Why don't, and I'm dying on the inside, you know, because I want to fit in. I want to be popular. And so finally, and I said, well, I'll just have a glass of milk and an orange juice. And that will be my lunch. Because I was willing not to break my absence, no matter what. And so what happened was I went to the bathroom and I stopped back by the... Because I asked the waiter. He says, no, this is it. This is it. I stopped by the maitre d' and the maitre... I said, "Um, listen, I don't eat sugar and I don't eat flour. It's been three years, four years. Um, Is there anything else in the kitchen besides chicken a la king? And he said, well, we might have some cold chicken left from last night. And maybe some fruit or something. I said, I'll take whatever. So 
So they brought out these chicken a la king to everybody, which is, you know, like, not, I mean, heavy. And they brought me a cold chicken and fruit plate. And everyone looked at my plate and went, oh, I want that. <laughs> the reason why I bring this up is because that was an ideal time for me to give in. It was an ideal time for me to, to binge. To say, okay, guys, you're more important than my belief in the program. You are more important than anything else. And I'm trying to make you happy. Because I told you the church of defect are people-pleasing. But you folks told me to eat is to die, and if I start, I won't stop. And that is why I have 33 years of abstinence. Because I believe step one. I believe in the disease concept. The disease concept says I'm not, I'm mentally and bodily different from my fellows, and I do not know how to stop. Now, if you stick around long enough and have to get 33 years of abstinence, your brain will go quiet. You will find peace and contentment. What I was trying to find with food, that if I could just get some more food, I'll be fine. So I didn't even eat it. If I could just buy it. If I just had it in my possession, I could go, my shoulders could relax, and I'd go, okay, the world's going away for a few minutes. I now can do that with just a simple breath. Just a simple It sticks me in touch with my higher power. And when I'm in touch with my higher power, I don't want to overeat. I don't want to do that. Why? It doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound enjoyable. It sounds like if to binge is like, when I think of donuts today, it's like, ugh, all that grease, ugh, God, it sounds God-awful. Which I guess I'm recoiling like from a hot flame. And that's because I work a 12-step program. Not a different 12-step program. Not any other thing that's different than anyone else. I read the same big book. If you saw me when I was new, I was crying in meetings constantly and talking about boys and how they were doing it right. And you, they, you, people were talking about, oh, here he comes again. He's going to talk about that boyfriend of oh, she, You know, talk about it. I was talked about it. They told me how they talked about me. <laughs> but I worked a program. And that's where I reap the benefits. Thanks for letting me share. I guess I've got time for some questions. I don't have trident. I don't have permanent rules about sponsoring. I sponsor everyone differently because there is no handbook to sponsoring except the in working with others in the in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only handbook I have. So I don't necessarily going to look. I mean, I'll look at someone and go. I mean, I've told people they call me and go like blah 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 blah, and they go like, and I just been there and I go like. I don't care to hear what you have to say. You're just binged. So your whole thinking is clouded right now with resentment and anger and hostility. You want to tell me how you feel and what you think? Give me a break. Like, put the fourth down. Now, if someone's having a hard time, I also, I believe that working the steps will take away the desire for food. Now, if someone told me they, that they binged their way through the fourth step, I might, after they got absent, I might go, let's write another one. Mm-hmm. So I don't have it. I don't, there is no, like, this is the way. Because I sponsor people who eat sugar. 
You know, it's not, there's no way. The way is the 12 steps. You work the steps to the best of your ability. I always say I'm not... Okay, I, but I, what I, the, I, I go, my home group is the kitchen sink. And they ask old-timers, how do you keep it fresh? And my, my answer is, the same as you, for the same answer you, are you not a compulsive overeater? Do you not want to seek excess food on a regular basis? No matter what my spiritual condition is, sometimes I just want more food. That's the constant reminder that if I could take one bite more, that this, this, the monster at bay will become the monster inside. And so I don't have to worry about like, oh my God, well, how will I forget? One way I do is I tell my story a lot. And I talk about the going, going gray, I, you know, my sight going gray. Also, today I had a, 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 an additional quesadilla, rice tortillas, because I can't eat corn, because I'm allergic to corn, because I, you know, I can't eat sugar, can't eat flour, can't eat corn, can't eat onions, can't eat chilies, can't eat peas, because, no, the chili, corn, and onions is because of the um, physical allergy. So, you know, it gets, I mean, I can feel really pity pot about that, can I? But no. So what I'm saying is I had this additional quesadilla today. Now, is that the best thing, decision for me? No. So that's, that reminds me. Oh, you are a compulsive overeater. Oh, you don't well when it comes to food. So that's my reminder. That's how I never, ever forget. Because my disease is always there. Always there. To remind me with one extra bite, you know, that might be completely absent, completely from my food plan, where I go, oh, Lord, you wanted to go to try on jeans today. Now you had that extra food, you know. I believe it takes, you work all 12 steps every day of your life, but it takes a step a year to work you. Now, I know that's a controversial statement. It's not in the big book, so you, you can just ignore that. I mean, if you want... It'll take probably a full year for you to totally understand the first step. Mm-hmm. It'll take the second year of your abstinence for you totally, not, not lengthen program. I'm talking abstinence, day in, back to The second year, you're going to find out about your spiritual experience. The third year is going to be all about God's will. Oh, my God, God's will. Fourth year, oh, my God, I'm really sick. Fifth year, you want to tell the world about how wonderful it is. And you're going to share that your life becomes like a TV. Then what happens is you start buying your press releases. And then your character defects come up again. And then the seventh year, your character defects are up in spades because your human ego came back. That's why I mean it takes about a step a year to work you. <laughs> but you work all 12 steps every day of your life. So do I, do I go like, oh, step one today, and the next month I'm going to work step two? No. I work all the steps. I mean, literally, after this much time, I, I can really tell you that my thinking is more along the lines of a 12-step program than a diseased mind. Because it's, after 33 years of reworking, 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 going like reworking, reworking, okay, and I want to be clear, that's 33 years. Okay, that's not 33 days or 33 months. And if you're like me, as of seven, eight years, going like, all I do is sit in damn meetings. I just want to give, why can't I have to sit in meetings all the time? I want to have a social life. Why do I have to be sitting in meetings all the time? <laughs> well, the reason why I sit in meetings all the time is so I could have a wonderful, fabulous social life at 20 years of abstinence. Mm. 
So if you're going to sit and piss and moan about how that all the meetings you go to, baby, try 33 years of sitting in meetings. <laughs> and you want to hear 33 years of newcomer, I mean, not newcomers, but of people whining and complaining about this and that. Okay, you just try that. But all i got some news for you. I don't come to OA to be social, to be, to be happy. I mean, to be, you know, I, as my sponsor said, you come to OA to save your life, to save your ass. And that's cussing on the pod, then so be it. Okay. Overall time, sorry. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much.